In Genesis chapter 43, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Becca. What is God doing? You ever ask that question? You know, God, what is going on here? Quite a lot of times, it's one of those questions that you don't know until you've already gone through the event in question. John Flavel, the uh, Puritan minister, said, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. There's John Flavel. You can see he's very Puritan-y. So Hebrew words, like in order to read Hebrew, instead of reading left to right, you read right to left. He's saying the providence of God. What is God doing in my life? What is God doing in this situation? Oftentimes, we only understand after we've been through it, so it requires a great amount of trust on our part. There will be things that we just don't know this side of the veil of tears. However, there is much we do, at least in general. Here's a bit of a turnaround. We do know know in general exactly what God is doing. In general, we know the ultimate purpose of whatever we're going through, how it all fits into these things. Joseph's brothers, they ask that question. What is this that God has done? In chapter 42, verse 28 of Genesis, Joseph's brothers ask that question. What is this God has done? That's when they find the money that they paid 
back in their grain sacks, but they still have the grain. This doesn't look good in their minds to them. It will be, it will, um, to them, it means getting their brother Simeon out of prison will be very difficult, if next to impossible, and very dangerous for them. So what is God doing here? God is sending, we know this because we have the book. They don't have the book. We have the book. So we know what's happening. God is sending this famine, and this famine is actually going to bless and heal a family. In general, God works all things to good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we ask God, what are you doing here? We ask God, why, what, what is going on? There's our answer. He is going to use this for our good and for his glory. This great work of the Holy Spirit in our life is not to give us a comfortable life. It's not to give us goosebumps. It's not even so much to perform miracles, but to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. That is the great work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is, God, that is what God is doing here, and he's what's doing in your life as well, making you more like Christ. A few weeks ago, when we were going over the last chapter of chapter 42, I talked about how God uses these different things in our life to disciple us. So in discipleship, God takes us from one degree of surrender to another degree of surrender. When we first get saved, you remember that time? I, I mean, some of you grew up in church, so maybe not, but I remember for me, when I first got saved, I, I, I always talk about it like I've never seen color before. Because that's how different my life was. And I thought in that moment, it's like that song, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. And then, I, I mean, I remember my first year knowing Christ, and I was a teenager, I was a junior higher. We got any junior hires in the room? I think we got a couple. All right, all right. I was a junior higher. I was not some super mature junior higher. I was pretty immature junior higher. And I remember, for me, a lot of people in my life were saying, you're really different, Jason. My mom was just really amazed at the difference in my life. I didn't really feel that different. They came to Christmas, and my mom asked me what I want for Christmas. And honestly, truly, I wanted nothing because I had Christ. And, and I thought, okay, this is the zenith of my Christianity. And then it came to the first thing that God, that the Holy Spirit found in me that was a blind spot. And then I realized how serious really was I about surrendering all. I mean, I could surrender that part, but what about this part right over here? What about something, how about the way I see myself? My self-image, that's a hard one. I think that's something God continually deals with me on, is that sometimes I see the function that God, that God uses me in as my identity, and that's not the truth. The truth my identity is I am a sheep of the shepherd. I'm a pastor of this church, and God has given me the responsibility of being an under-shepherd towards you, but that's not who I am. 10,000 years from now, I'm not your pastor. I'm a son of the living God. And we often, there, there's these moments where God will take us from surrender to surrender, surrender. And Jacob, as we saw in here, as Becca was reading, hopefully you were paying attention, he is being asked to surrender the one thing he fears the most, his youngest son. His youngest son, in his mind, the only son of his favorite wife. I know that's messed up, but that's, that was what happened. He had four wives. His favorite wife died. He thought his oldest son from his favorite wife died. So he only has his last one. So now circumstances, and we know that God is behind all of this, is calling him to surrender even that. Faith over feelings. Surrender. That word surrender, it's really not anyone's favorite word unless you're French. World War II joke, all right. Um, <laughs> makes me think of this Rich Mullins song, and actually I've got, a, I've got a slide for that, the Rich Mullins quote. 
Surrender don't come naturally to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. And I've beat my head against so many walls. Now I'm falling down. I'm falling on my knees. What does Jacob want? He thinks he wants Benjamin at home where it's safe. But you know what he's doing to Benjamin in this? And you can, pull, you can keep that, that quote up from Rich Mullins. Pre- appreciate that. Thank you. What he's doing in this is he's, he's keeping Benjamin from fulfilling the design God has for his life. He's making Benjamin into this idol in his life as well because he's willing to sacrifice the other sons for this one son. Yikes, bikes. So he's not loving Benjamin well, but he has this really clingy, codependent thing going on. And so he's fighting for this. Is this what he really wants? Or what does he really want? Is for his family to be healed. For all 12 sons to be together and in harmony as one family, carrying out the mission of God in their life. Surrender don't come naturally to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. It's why George MacDonald, the inspiration for C.S. Lewis, said that God finds it hard to give because he'll only give his best, and man finds it hard to receive because he won't take God's best. And how about for you and for me? We fight God on things where the Holy Spirit starts saying, I want that. We're like, no, 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 don't worry about that. I'll give you all of this. Just let me, let me hold on to this. And C.S. Lewis's great divorce, this was symbolized by a dragon that one of these men had. And he's, like, he's, and he's saying, hey, don't, don't worry about that. I'll hide him. You know, he only acts up sometimes. And of course, God was calling him to kill the dragon, to surrender even that. Surrender doesn't come naturally to us. We'd rather fight God for what we don't really want than take what he gives that's free. I remember there was this shirt, I think the Dow kids were wearing this, and it said faith over fear, and I love that. If I was to add anything to it, it'd be faith over feelings. Our feelings are not our faith, even though our faith engenders feelings. The greatest moment of faith you'll have in your life is where either one, you will feel nothing, or two, you will feel anything but faith. And you say, I don't care. I still decide to trust. I don't care. I still decide to trust. I remember going through this myself. Another time in my life where the Holy Spirit was call- calling me to surrender yet another thing. And it was when my, my physical, my biological father died. It represented a lot to me. I didn't even understand at the time. In fact, I really didn't process it at the time. It was a year later. And I start, the Holy Spirit starts dealing me with, it, with this. And I think for a lot of people, I did what a lot of people do, is I tell God, you know, that's in the past. I'm over that. I'm okay with that. I, you know, I didn't shed any tears then. I'm not shedding any tears now. I didn't have any relationship with my dad. My mom and dad got divorced when I was six. Holy Spirit starts dealing with me because I finally had a, a moment where I let all the busyness of life, I wasn't busy at the exact moment, and that's when the Holy Spirit strikes is when we are actually ready to listen to him. He starts dealing me with this, and I realized there was a part of me that was really, I didn't like this, but it was true. I was extremely resentful because I would never get a relationship with my biological father. It was something that I, I was hoping for all growing up. See, my mom, it's, it's hard to explain, but basically I saw my dad maybe once every six years. So I thought, okay, once I turn 18, then, then I'll have that moment. It'll be my choice. I'll get, to, I'll get to have that relationship with him. And then when he died, I realized I, 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 
I didn't like it, but I felt so wronged. And I don't know, I don't think I felt wronged by God. I just felt so wronged. And God wanted even that part. God deals with us in honesty, not in the mask we even show ourselves. Faith over feelings is what I would add to that. God is calling us to surrender as he's called Jacob to surrender time and time again. In Proverbs 3, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. That's a nice Sunday school, a nice children's church verse. I think this is probably one of the hardest verses even for believers to really put into their life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know what many of us do when things go bad? Do we inquire of the Lord? Or do we do what Jacob does? Get angry. We start trying to fix it ourselves. And do not lean on your own understanding. How many people come to me and they're like, well, I just don't think God would, would what? Do what, what you wouldn't do? Is he not God of all creation? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Then James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. But let him who asks, let him who asks in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here really hits the point right here. Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has that he has cannot be my disciple. Can I, can I break kind of a lie that's made its way into Christianity? There is no difference between a disciple and somebody who's saved. Being a disciple is not being a superhero in the faith. That is step one in the faith. And if Jesus says, the person who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, that fills you. And God will, that's why God, the Holy Spirit, constantly looks for things that we need to surrender to him in our life. You know what's wonderful? He meets us at where we're at. He doesn't start with Jacob with his kids. He starts in other places. Somebody was asking me one time about, like, like, does God take us through, like, little steps or is it big steps? I was like, for us, it always feels like a huge step. For him, it always is kind of like a baby step. Because from where we are to where we will be, we couldn't imagine. If God should show us that, I think we would run the other way screaming. Trusting God. Surrender sooner rather than later. God will not rest until every part of you is his. It's best to surrender sooner rather than later, but surrender you must. Trusting God, trusting God is difficult when you don't know what to do. Sometimes in our life, we are filled with decisions that don't have a clear answer. This is often times when the choices either are, are all good or all bad. God is so good that when we ask him for wisdom in those times, he gives us wisdom and he doesn't give us a hard time for not asking sooner. And one encouragement I would have for you if you are facing a decision today and all the decisions are bad or all the decisions are good, it's more about your heart and your conduct during the time of decision than it will be about what you decide. Amen. It's also when you know, you know harder, trusting God is, um, when we don't know what to do is difficult, but trusting God when we do know what to do is even more difficult. From the scriptures, it would appear that most of the time we do know what to do, we just lack the commitment to do it. 
Sometimes we say that we have no choice when we've already made the bad decision and want to comfort ourselves because of it. It's why we and Jacob don't inquire the Lord when tragedy strikes, when the big decisions come. We don't want to pray. We just want to come up with our, with our, with our plan. What God wants from us is not our tireless work, but our submission to him and his plan. Dear one, if you are feeling so run down, if you are feeling, man, I am trying my hardest, it does not seem like it's going anywhere, my message for you today is surrender. Surrender. Take a breath and surrender. Going back to that song I mentioned before from Rich Mullins, which the song, by the way, is Hold Me, Jesus. He has another line there. It's so hot inside my soul, I swear there must be blisters on my heart. A great explanation of what it's like to resist what we know that we should do and not doing it. It's so hot inside my soul, I swear there must be blisters on my heart. That's what it feels like. When God tells us to move, oftentimes we don't want to move. When God tells us to move, to venture out, we want to stay put. It's not just Jacob with his son Benjamin. It's also a theme we see out throughout the scriptures, even amongst the disciples who are given a command by the resurrected Lord, our God, before he's ascended into heaven, to go into all the world, not just to stay in Jerusalem, but to all of Judea and Samaria and to the outermost edges of the world. You know what they do instead? Institutionalize. We're going to stay in Jerusalem. You know what spread them out? Persecution. Persecution. Oftentimes, we want to stay where we are put until God makes it physically untenable, just like Jacob. It's a theme throughout the scripture. And in many of our lives, not so much in physically, but, also, but in spiritually, instead of moving out into the, into the purpose that God has for us, we stay exactly where we're at. Until, once again, until persecution happened, even the disciples were there. You know, here's one reason we stay where we're at instead of going out, instead of doing what God requires of us, is that we get very comfortable, and if we're comfortable, we don't move. And who among us, once we get home, we're sitting down on the couch, it's so nice, we have our chips and pop, we're ready to watch the game, and then the significant other, as soon as we are fully relaxed, says, hey, can you get me this? No, I'm comfortable. You get it yourself. We don't want to move when we are comfortable, and comfort is the enemy of progress. Since I'm in the mode for, mood for uh, 90 CCM songs, here's another one that kind of went below the radar, and it's the song Painting Pictures of Egypt by Sarah Grove. And in that song, she says, it's not about losing faith. It's not about trust. It's all about comfortable when you move so much. And when we're comfortable, we don't want to move. For Jacob, he waits until the food is almost completely out before he sends the, the nine to go get the one. Well, ten, I guess, with Benjamin. It makes me think, once again, of the, the meme I showed last week, if you want to play that. Make sure it sounds up this time. Stop crying. It won't do any good. And anyway, you have a lot of work to do, starting right now. So that's my favorite one now because I am, for February, I'm doing this kind of low-carb diet, like extremely low-carb. And so when I go running, I play that for myself. Like this last Friday, I did six miles, and I was like, I need to hear this because I'm crying. It's no use crying. It doesn't do any good. Plus, you have a lot of work to do starting right now. So God wants us to surrender all to him. At the top of the last chapter, I preached about three things that God uses to disciple his children, 
the fallen world, the sins of others, and our own sin. This week, I want to parallel that with what with God with God's work in Jacob's life to cause him to surrender. So what does God use to encourage us to surrender to him? One, God uses circumstances. Two, God uses the wisdom of others. And then the third one, God uses our forgotten faith. Starting off in verse 1, God uses our God uses circumstances. In verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land. You remember last chapter, it was just the beginning of the famine. They went and they got grain. They're told, hey, if we're coming back, we got to bring Benjamin with us. And to paraphrase Jacob, he says, over my dead body, you will. But now the elephant in the room will not be silent. It's getting in the way of everything. The famine is severe in the land. C.S. Lewis in, in, uh, in his book, um, The Problem of Pain, says, pain is God's megaphone. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. You're really good back there. Is it Natalie back there or Sophia? Good job. Anyway, um, let me read that again. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Now, I think probably the greatest curse God will give anybody is give them a very comfortable and easy life because they have no clue where they're at with him. It's easy to come here on a Sunday morning, everything's going well, raising your hands, praising God. It's a whole lot harder when you feel like the guy from Lamentation who says that the backhand of the Lord has been against him all his life. To choose to praise him then. Pain is often the megaphone that brings things that, that often we would have just ignored up to the forefront, and it's ultimately for our good and his glory. Last chapter, we saw how Jacob was, uh, was not, in, he was not interested in letting Benny go to Egypt. Coupled, coupled that with how Jacob doesn't know how long this famine is going to be. He probably thought he could wait this famine out with the grain that they had. He doesn't realize it's going to be seven years. So what is he doing for this time while the food is running out? We don't really know. The Bible doesn't really say. David Gusick says, I bet you he was praying. I bet you he was making sacrifices. I bet he was on his hands and knees praying the famine would end because he knows if the famine doesn't end, then Benjamin's going to Egypt or everyone dies. I mean, that's, that's his two options. He doesn't know what God is doing. He doesn't know God's plan in this. He knows what his agenda is, and perhaps he's praying that. And I think that holds a lot of weight, even though we don't know that, because I, I know I've, incur, incur, I've encountered that myself, and I've encountered other people who have done the exact same thing, praying against the very will of God, as though God is going to change his mind about something he's not changing his mind about. I mean, I remember this, this um, one individual they came to me, and they were, they were in tears, and they're like, Jason, why doesn't God answer me? I have no tears left to cry. And I'm like, what are you praying about? I could be pregnant, and I want God to make it not. And I very lovingly said, God is not going to kill your precious child for your disobedience. And that God is actually blessing you through this. And the person does, did eventually see that. But God uses our circumstances to cause us to surrender. This 
famine is not ending anytime soon. And it doesn't matter whether or not Jacob has been praying. God is answering a different prayer. We see that first, uh, not the first word here, but it describes the famine as severe. The Hebrew word here is kabid, kabid, kabid. The Hebrew word kabid is also translated as glory. It's also translated as severe. What it means is weighty. We talk about God's glory being kabid. We're talking about the weighty presence of God, like you can feel him in the room. When we talk about the famine being severe, it is bearing down. In our lives, we have troubles, we have irritations. Sometimes the oppression is severe. Sometimes it will not wait until later. And we see in this right here that the people of God, the patriarchs, they're going through the same thing the rest of the world is as well. And that is true in our life. There is false teaching that Christians, that we are at a different run of society, that nothing bad can happen to us, which is silly because everybody lives a different truth than that. Like you go today, you go to pay for something, your dollar is worth just as much as everyone else's, far less than it was a few years ago. And that's just the world we live in. Even if you didn't vote a certain way, your dollar is still worth that. The people of God also go through the same trials, the same severe kabid famine the rest of those in the world were going through. And whether Jacob or the patriarchs, they are praying that this does not have to come to a, to, to a head God is answering a better prayer. <clears throat> if Jacob did pray for the famine to end, God is answering a better prayer that he should have been praying. He should have been praying, God, heal my family. God, heal my family. God uses circumstances cause our surrender. If the famine is not severe, Jacob keeps Benjamin home and Simeon rots over in Egypt. But God does not, God does cause the famine to be severe for Jacob to cause him to surrender. There's a book appeared in prayers called The Valley of Vision, if you want to pull that up right there. I believe this is an unattributed prayer, so I don't have anyone to attribute it to. It says, I thank thee that, my me that many of my prayers have been refused. I have asked amiss and do not have. I have prayed for the, from, from lust and have been rejected. I have longed for Egypt and have been given wilderness. Go on with thy patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting, and fitting me to accept it. In Romans, it talks about how since we don't know how we ought to pray, the Spirit prays for us. This is not speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit is translating our prayers, praying prayers that we are not consciously praying because they are better prayers and God is answering the better prayers. Sometimes we come to God and we, and we ask him for something. He says yes, he says no. And sometimes he's answering a better prayer in our life. And God is answering a better prayer than the prayers that Jacob has either has been asking or has not been asking. He hasn't been praying this one. God, heal my family. We don't move if we're comfortable. Necessity drove Jacob to do what normally he would not do. We see, we see his instruction. He tells them, he tells them, even though this famine is severe, in verse 2, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from, brought, bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go and buy us a little food. A little food. Does he still not understand the severity of what is going on? I know often we don't either when we come to the Lord because we just want a little comfort. We just want a little restoration. We just want enough to get through. And you know, I see this, unfortunately, all the time when couples are going through a rough patch. is really they just want to stop fighting. 
They don't really want restoration because as soon as they stop fighting, then I don't see them anymore. And I'm wondering what's going on in their hearts, in their life. The problems that they had, they're not, they're not solved. They're not even close to being done. But they come to God and they're like, I just want a little food. I just want enough to tide me over so I don't have to. Maybe he thought if they just get a little food, they don't have to bring Benjamin. Well, he's, he's very wrong. And I don't, I don't know if he thought that. Even if he thought that, he probably didn't think that. He probably knew that that was not true. Because while God will use circumstances to cause us to surrender to him, God will also use, in verses 3 through 10, wisdom of others. Everybody needs somebody in their life who's not invested into the decisions they're making as they are to talk about it with. Because they have a clear view of what's going on. And it's one of the things I pray when I'm counseling you. If you come to my office, I ask God to give me a clear view. And you guys make it very hard because you've wormed yourself into my heart. And I can't, I can't undo it. So there's some times where after I'm done talking with you, I'm coming to the Lord. Lord, give me a certain amount of distance here so I can see clearly because I can't see clearly right now. So I ask God for that because I know everybody needs something like that. And even though his fourth oldest son, Judah, is involved in the situation, it is not Judah's son who is being asked to go to Egypt. So God will use wisdom of others. He'll use unlikely sources. We often see this in Scripture. When the people of God are at a crossroads or a slump, an unlikely source tells them what they should already know. For Jacob, it was his son Judah. Moses, it was his father-in-law, Jethro. I didn't know there was a south in the Middle East, but his name was Jethro. And when's the next time I'm going to get to make that joke? Anyway, for, for, uh, for you, it could be your in-laws, it could be a co-worker, it could be just somebody on the streets. Others see our situation clearly than we do because they do not have all the emotional baggage that we do. And Judah... I mean, of course, we, we have the rest of the book, right? We know who Judah is. We know who comes from the line of Judah. So it's not a big surprise to us. I think it would have been a big surprise to Jacob. Because when Reuben tells him the exact same thing Judah's about to tell him, over my dead body, Judah says the same thing, and he's like, okay, let's do it. Um, God uses, in verses 3 through 10, God uses the wisdom of others. Judah, Judah is the fourth oldest son of Jacob. His name means praise. But so far in his life, there's not been a lot praiseworthy. He is, he is the one who had the bright idea that when they wanted to get rid of their brother, if they're going to get rid of their buddy, brother, they might as well make some money off of it. He is, the one, he is the one who sleeps with who he thinks is a prostitute, who's really his daughter-in-law. This is the first time he looks good in the scripture. We see that there was a change in his heart when he had judged his daughter-in-law so harshly to realize that he was more, he was of a less noble character than her. Unlike Reuben, his father actually listens to Judah. And here's one of our hints that there might be something special about Judah that we should be paying attention to. It will be Judah who God will choose to bring about the Messiah. Jesus Christ comes from the line of Judah. Reading the narrative without already knowing what is going to happen in the future, this might be surprising to us. I think it's surprising. I mean, not that Joseph would be, Jacob would be looking to his first three sons, each one disqualifying themselves in some way, shape, or form. But I think maybe we would think it's Joseph. After all, Joseph is the governor of Egypt, right? All these parallels between Joseph and Jesus, but Joseph, but Jesus doesn't come from the line of Joseph. That is why early on here, um, as we were introduced to Joseph, I talked about the line of Joseph and the line of Judah. 
And Joseph's line is actually ends up becoming very wicked, while Ju- Judah's line ends up becoming obviously very holy with Jesus Christ and obviously the kings with David. Even reading this, sometimes I think we wonder, isn't, shouldn't it be Joseph? Here's the simple answer. It's not about performance. It's about God's own decision. God makes up his mind about who he will and who he will not use and to what, and to what place he will use them. And right now he is using Judah, this unlikely source of wisdom for Jacob to, to surrender. In verses 4 and 5, we see him answer, If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to him, to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now I want to remind you of the previous chapter. That's not all he said. He said, I fear God. Do this and you will live. Do it not and you will die. They've had this discussion over. And you can imagine Judah almost kind of having this sigh of like, we're not going. If you send him, I will use me as surety. That's King James Version says surety. I love that word. He's like, I will be responsible for him. But if he doesn't go, we're not going because we might as well just kill ourselves because he said, do this and you will live. Do it not and you will die. So he says, he said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. Israel said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? In verse 7, they replied, the man questioned us carefully about, uh, about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we have in, it, in any way known that he would say, bring your brother down? So Judah tells him there's no compromise here. There's not partial obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And when the person tells you and he can do it, that he's going to kill you, you might want to err on the side of over, overdoing it as opposed to underdoing it. It's Judah who reminds Jacob of this, even though it was clearly stated to him before. The Lord of the land did not give them a sliding scale of how to be obedient here. He did not grade them on a curve. Either they would do it or they wouldn't do it. They would not see his face if they did not bring Benny back. They do similar things when it comes to, uh, to, we do similar things when it comes to the actual command of God. We all turn into lawyers if it's something we want to do or we don't want to do. All of a sudden, the rule isn't about animals sleeping on beds, it's sleeping on beds with sheets. It's an animal farm reference I'm not going to go into right now. But we see the command of God and we're like, okay, but what I'm doing is different because I do it on a Tuesday and the rule commands for a Wednesday. We have other ways. So Judah, he tells him, yeah, there's no compromise here. Either Benjamin comes with us or we don't go. And then Jacob, he takes this very personally. And he gives him that, you know, he's like, he gives him that statement, you know, only if, you know, only if, only if. You know, we say that too, right? We have all these regrets about our past. He has regrets about, regret about their past because he's, he tells them, you know, if you, why do you treat me so badly by telling them you had another brother? Only if you would have just kept your mouth shut and lied to him, things would have been fine. My life would have been good. And we do this as well. We use only if. And only if sacrifices the joy of the present on the anxiety of the past. We say only if, and we have all these regrets about our past, that God, that the blood of Christ is covered over. We take the joy of the present, and we sacrifice it on the altar of the past. Now, what if is different? What if the anxieties of the future, we sacrifice the joy of the present on the anxieties of the future? 
You only have to live bad things in your life one time, not a million times before, a million times after. But that's the way many of us are. No matter what blessing God brings down on us, it is so dulled because we're like, only if they hadn't said they had another brother. Here's a, here's a different way he could have responded. We're going to die. But we have one opportunity not to. Isn't this amazing? And we basically have assurance that if you bring Benjamin down there, we're going to be fine. Instead, he's like, couldn't you have lied to the guy? You guys lie all the time. <laughs> How come you just couldn't lie right now for a good cause? In verse 7, Judah tells him, what could we do? We didn't know. He's asking questions so fast through an interpreter. We didn't think to lie. Honestly, it really hasn't been a high point for this family in their past. Abraham lied about his wife, not once but twice. Isaac did the exact same thing. Jacob almost made a career of it, and his sons wanted the championship belt. The truth will, not, the truth will mend what has been broken, but first it will have to break them. And it's as though the governor, and like, they, like Judah tells him, he's like, okay, this guy seems to know a lot. We didn't know he was going to ask for our brother. It's almost like he knows us. Of course, we know. It's Joseph. He knows him. So Judah gives this wisdom in verses 8 through 10, and Judah said to Israel, his father, can I point something out here? In Genesis, when it comes to Jacob, Jacob has another name given to him by God, Israel. And the writer of Genesis will use these interchangeably. I think for a purpose. See, when he's acting selfishly, it'll use the name Jacob. I mean, not exclusively, but sometimes, and I think there's a reason for that. And then like right here, he is about to act like the true father of a nation. And says, and Judah said to his father Israel, and we'll get to it a little bit further on, where it says Israel will say instead of Jacob says. Judah said to, to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And we, will go, and we will arise and go, and we will live and not die, both we and you, and also your little ones. I will be a pledge for a safety, or surety, if you have King James, which is a cool word, um, from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we are not delayed, we would have, we would have returned twice. Verse 10, I like verse 10 because he's time conscious and I'm very time conscious. My wife hates it because that's me. I'm like, if we would have left 15 minutes and not stopped for gas, we would have been home by now. <laughs> Last night we got in kind of late and I was, I was suppressing it. Aren't you so happy, Beck? I'm doing better with it. I'm trying to not be like Judah here. I'm like, if we would have just gotten here, we would have been there twice over. We could have went home and gone back. Uh, <laughs> But Judah's wisdom here is the same one as Reuben, but he's listened to. He's listened to because Jacob is ready to surrender. He can hear the clear voice that they were told coming back without Benny would be a bad idea. He doesn't want to believe it. And a lot of times we don't want to believe reality, but reality has that really pesky thing of not going away, no matter how much we wish it would. You, know, you look at the world today and there's a lot of, especially our culture, our culture our four plus four equals five. It just seems like every week there's a new four plus four equals five that everyone has to agree with, even though everyone knows is wrong. Reality has this really pesky way of, of, of dealing with things that we can deny it all we want, but it has its way. There is a famine. The Lord of the land said, we, we're bringing Benny, or, uh, or you're not getting out of this alive. 
So God uses circumstances to cause us to surrender. He uses the wisdom of others. He also uses our forgotten faith. Our forgotten faith. I heard somebody snicker when they saw that before. You realize that's a reforging of the sword, right? In Lord of the Rings? Gotcha. He uses our forgotten faith. I thought that was a good symbol. Because sometimes the enemies of our life get us to forget our faith. Forget us, try to get us to forget what God has done in our life or to make it seem very much less. We need to reforge the sword that was broken. Our enemies want us to forget. All of you here today, you have three mortal enemies. And I don't mean Lex Luthor, Joker, and the Green Goblin. We have Satan his, and his angels, the culture of this world, and our own sinful nature. Satan wants us to forget the benefit faith has. Satan wants us to think that faith is only about our selfish pursuits. To forget that the, what's in, the most important thing is that we know the Lord. The world scoffs at our relationship with God and tries us to compare it to other religions so that we think, no, I really wasn't with the Lord and I'm so tired of this because so many people are listening to the lies of Satan with this and they'll think, oh, I, I never really was with the Lord even though the testimony of so many people around them says, no, you really were. You're just in a time of disobedience and you need to surrender. So the world gets us to believe, oh, it's just, it's just ridiculous. We just got caught up in the emotionalism of it, or it makes us think, or it compares us to other religions, or even to fanaticism. But our worst enemy in this is our own sinful heart, sinful nature. Because when we want something, we know that's against God's will. Like Jacob right here, when he knows what he has to give up, we will make every excuse in the world. And the worst lies are the lies we tell ourselves. What has Jacob had in his life of faith? Oh my word. He's had a dream from God. He's had an enemy that's been turned away. He has wrestled with God. There is this famine going on that's actually for his good. What are the, what are the times that God meets with Jacob? He has a dream. He is walking. He's walking towards his mother's family land. He has a dream about God being above the sta- a stairway to heaven. And Josh, you cannot play that song ever here. He wrestles with a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And when his brother is tracking him down to kill him, his brother embraces him. And now there's this famine. You would think that his faith would tell him, big deal. Once again, when we are not surrendering something to God, we forget about our faith. We forget the, the, the goodness of the Lord in our time. And verses 11 through 13, he does surrender. Then their father Israel said to them, Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag and carry a present to the man, a little balm a, and a little honey, gum. Or what kind of gum? Just kidding. I mean, it's just price pyramid. Yeah, I agree. Myrrh. Pistachio nuts and almonds, Becca's all about that. That would be, that would be, it's her favorite. And to take the money with you, and to take the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. There's another reference, and this scared them in the previous chapter when they saw the money. Because there's three things that people could assume. One, they stole the money, they stole the grain, or they sold their brother into slavery. Here's something also interesting to note. I only note it um, primarily just because other commentators have as well, is that when they sold their brother Joseph to slavery, they got 20 
units of money, of silver. Here they're coming back with their original 10, because there was 10 of them, and now double 20 units of money to buy back grain. Some commentators wonder if this is perhaps the very money they used, they, they'd gotten from selling their brother Joseph. I don't know if that's true or not, but there are 20 units of that, of that money. Tells them to take these, tells them to take the presents, the money, and yes, even Benjamin. There should be an urgency in our faith. Procrastination is not a spiritual gift. You had all, you know, in procrastination, you had all the time, the whole year, students to work on that project or paper, and you decide the night before is the time to do the science fair project, right? You're going to somehow fit three weeks of research into one night. Procrastination with a famine is far worse because people's lives are on the line. Spiritual procrastination is even worse because people's souls are on the line. Perhaps your own soul. In verse 14, Jacob, remembering that forgotten faith, says three things about God. In verse 14, may God Almighty... Some of you probably have a footnote right there. If you look at that footnote, the word that that Jacob is using there is El Shaddai. Amy Grant singing right now? I'm just kidding. Um, Remember that song? Since it's 90s day today, I guess. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Something else in Hebrew, Adonai. Anyway. um, May God Almighty, he says that God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. God is all-present. May God Almighty grant you mercy. The mercy, the compassion of the Lord. They believed instead of the heart, it came from the bowels. I don't know who's right. I prefer heart because bowels seems weird to me. Um, <laughs> grant you mercy before the man, and may, uh, may he send back your brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He recognizes God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, and God is all-present. Jacob has experienced all of these within his life with the Lord personally. See, it's easy for us to say that God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, God is all-present. And when you, have a, but when you have a personal experience with any one of those, it means something different to you, something tender. There are two words when we use, we talk about God's nature in this, about God's far and God's near nature, transcendent and imminent. I think, yes, good. Um, he's had a personal experience with both. He had a dream in which God was above the ladder that goes to heaven. The ladder is Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Nathaniel, you'll see, you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man as well. And God the Father, he is, above, he is above the ladder. He is transcendent, meaning that he is far. He is above all things. And through him, through him all things were made. But he's also imminent, meaning he is close. He wrestles with Jacob till daybreak and puts his hip out of joint and gives him a new name. Jacob knows these things, even though his heart doesn't know it at the moment. He knows these things. The end of verse 14 is something of a puzzle on how to take it. At the end of uh, verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother, um, your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Bereaved meaning to be made childless. It's somewhat of a puzzle. Is this an expression of faith or fatalism? 
If you're not familiar with the term fatalism, fatalism is not just the belief that God is in control, that God is sovereign, is that you have no part in your own life. You're just an automaton going through it. This is a, a, a ditch that um, some, people, some people end up falling into and they just become disconnected from their life. So people wonder if, uh, if his statement, if I'm bereaved in my children, then I am bereaved. Is it faith or fatalism? Let me explain both right here. If it's faith, it'd be very much like Esther. Esther in chapter 4, verse 16. After having people fast and pray for what she is about to do, she says if she perishes, she perishes. And almost universally, we see this as a statement of faith, of having that act of faith. I haven't heard a word from God, but I trust in the nature of God. But even if not, and that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they tell the king, our God is fully able to rescue us from the fire, but if not, we still will not bow down and worship. We generally see that as a statement of faith, or when Jonathan, the friend of David, and his armor bearer faces the enemy alone, he says, God is able to save by many or by few. But if it's maybe fatalism, we look at James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, but let him, let him ask in faith, Without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave on the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a dumbbell-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I don't know if this is doubting or a laissez-faire attitude, but I know this, active faith is a good thing. Submitting yourself into the hand of God and accepting whatever comes, whatever may be, will be is good. But doubting the goodness of God is not and perhaps it was. Jacob has something that we don't. He has a promise from God that his children will be as many as the sand on the seashore. He says, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm made childless, I'm childless. Okay, God has already told him that won't happen. So he doesn't have to wonder that either. Sometimes we wonder, okay, is God going to take me through this? Is God going, is there going to be restoration at the end of this? Is there going to be a message out of this mess? You don't have to wonder that because God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Yes, I may have trouble. I may, have, I may, I may actually undergo things that I thought well, I would never go through that are in my deepest, nearest fears, but I want you to know that while you are pressed, you are not crushed. You are persecuted, but you're not abandoned. And in verse 15, they return to Egypt. Egypt is quite a place, thematically in the scriptures. It's a place of it's the, at their time, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And the rest of scripture, it represents contrasting concepts. It's the land of failure. We look at Abraham. He goes to Egypt in a time of famine, and it's a failure for him. But then we look at Joseph, who's in Egypt at a time of famine, and it's a time of faith. It's a land of slavery, but it's also a land of exodus. Whatever it is, all of it and all of your life is Romans 8.28. For we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As I finish up here in worship team, you can come up at this time. Throughout this series, especially when we got to Joseph, I, I, I talk about all the parallels between Joseph and Jesus Christ. Here's something that's not a parallel. It's a contrast. And that is between Jacob and God the Father. Jacob unwillingly has to be pushed and prodded to give up his son, but God the Father, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that who may ever believe in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. This is how Jacob is not like God the Father. God the Father willingly gives his Son. 
So in summary today, what do you need to surrender? What has the Holy Spirit been speaking to you in your life? The thing you've been holding on to so tight and you're just hoping God doesn't see it because if you have to give this up, what will happen to you? Maybe it's even a part of your very identity that God is using circumstances, the wisdom of others, and a remembrance of your forgotten faith to bring to the very forefront that your identity is not in what you do, it's not in what you have done, it's in who you are in relation to God the Father, which is adopted son by the power of Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. As I was praying over this message throughout the entire week, I was like, you know what's cool about this? Is that I think people, I think almost everybody in this room is going to have a different takeaway from this message. Because all of us have something we're not surrendering. The only reason why you may think, no, I don't have one, is because you're in that moment where the Holy Spirit is starting to bring it to the forefront. This would be an excellent time to ask the Lord to search me. Because this would be very gentle if the Holy Spirit in a church service brings it up, as opposed to having to use circumstances, the wisdom of others, and remembrance of your forgotten faith. It'd be the very gentle discipline of the Lord. And then we come to him and we give that as an offering. As Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I I implore you, brothers, in view of Christ's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, some translations, acceptable act of worship. So worship is, it's not singing songs. It's not doing religious things. It's saying, here, this part of my heart, I thought I gave it all, but you found this part, I want to give that back to you. It's being a living sacrifice. It's about our faith being something that is now, not something in the past. Something that is a living hope. Surrender Surrender, not like Jacob, who waits until things are too, are, are unavoidable, but surrender now. Better now than later. Worship team's going to lead us in our final song. And that is my, once again, that has been my prayer throughout this whole week. This is my prayer as we sing this last song, that the Holy Spirit will reveal in you areas in your life you need to surrender. Areas in your life you need to surrender. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's a deep wound and sorrow that the Lord wants to lovingly heal. Maybe it's something I couldn't even think of. I trust the Holy Spirit to show that to you today as we sing our final song. Thank you very much, worship team.